We must speak the truth about terror. Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories, malicious lies that attempt to shift the blame away from the terrorists themselves. Take your advice. What happens? I tell you what happens. Blam! I have a window that looks directly at the World Trade Center, and I saw... No delusion! Shit's getting way too complicated for me. Welcome to The Antidote. This is Greg McCarran. And this is Jeremy Rothkuchel. All right, that's the first time we've said that, been able to say that for a bit here is um, we are uh, back here in 2024. Uh, a lot has happened and I think we both needed to take a little bit of a reset, Jeremy, but we are back and ready to um, to get into what I'm gonna call here, looking forward by going backward, I guess. Um, looking back at the last couple of months and some of the things that have happened as a means of looking forward to um, what might be the most fateful year in terms of like modern you know, American politics and in terms of our modern American political landscape, perhaps up there with a few exceptions. But I mean, this is definitely, as I say a lot, uncharted waters we're heading into. So um, we were able to reset a little bit at the end of 2023, which I think was necessary for both of us. And now we're ready to um, really try to just navigate the landscape of 2024 as best we can with the um, type of um, commentary and analysis that we provide here. Yeah, and, and uh, hopefully we will be uh, moving forward while looking backwards or looking but forward by looking backward rather than uh, looking forward while moving backward. But uh, we cannot forget uh, what has immediately happened, what is ongoing right now. And then as we uh, think is important here to do, to even dig a little bit deeper into history around some of these crucial arcs of history or deep events that really help us understand our current moment uh, more deeply. And so 2024 is, you know, we're well into it now at this point. And it, it will definitely be shaping up as maybe one of the more consequential political years, at the very least domestically in the United States. I get the sense of a, a national uh, political climate like we will have never seen before in terms of the potential decomposition of bipartisan politics to, to some extent. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah. And in terms of looking forward and, and backwards both, um, you can look at this through both the lens of short-term and long-term uh, modern history. In the short-term, our domestic landscape is directly affected by the events of October 7th. Um, in, of course, with the attacks in Israel and everything that's happened since then with the uh, a lot of the conversations and discourse around the very, very um, heightened weaponized uh, culture wars really being turned up with an emphasis on um, on issues as it relates to um, issues surrounding Israel and Palestine and uh, the issue of the Palestinians and the issue of, uh, you know, what is and is not anti-Semitism. All the things we were talking about just before 10-7 with the whole ban the ADL campaign and still a lot of those factors are at play, but um, our immediate landscape culturally, socially, even politically is um, has been shaped and affected by um, or in part by the events of 10-7, as well as what we talk about with the more long-term lens of, you know, you see this latest iteration of Donald Trump continued dominance, among other things, and it's um, 
so many roads, if not all, lead back to the respective events of what we titled our series as back in 2018. From 9-11 to 11-9, those two events continue to be so um, so front and center. And as you talked about going into the uncharted waters, you know, Sarah Kenzier continues to remind people of this. Um, that uh, this is post-coup attempt America, and that you know we've got a person who actually tried to um, tried to did, this is unprecedented almost, and that a person's being allowed to run for office again. That you know that was at the forefront of, um, and I know some people don't like to hear this, but at the forefront of really trying to stay in power and um, and usurp the uh, the rule of law and the sitting um the transition of government and transition of power and all this i mean so it's uh it's very uncharted and then also as i talked i think i talked a little bit about this and we were tired to talk about it among ourselves before we you know kind of took a break to reset and reprocess but um the opposition party quote unquote like um the you know, 10-7 was a really bad time in terms of uh exposing uh and um of like a very uh, one of the major weak points, which of course is the question around Israel and the inability of so many people to stand up and uh, you know just to um, not um, not rock the apple cart, so to speak, with the serious levers of power that come from the domestic lobby and other interests. And so it's just been playing out all over, uh, going back to ten seven, all over our political landscape from battles on college campuses and the shaping of um, you know speech and what is and is not considered acceptable on our college campuses all the way to um, just a major look puts a direct um, lens and microscope on the some of the more uh, problematic states of our current domestic politics even you know as we talked about a lot like the people who are supposed to be seen as and are a big part of the reason why someone like a Trump and everything that came with it was able to come to prominence in the first place because of the problems within our our own domestic political system, and a big part of that is this um, relationship with the uh, obviously the you know, domestic Israel lobby, where the sitting president, who's seen as a um, who was seen in the Obama years, and I think in some ways uh, there's evidence to point in this direction, was seen as a um, as a problem for elements of uh, you know the Netanyahu government in Joe Biden, just being you know I would say feckless would be an understatement in terms of like just the green lighting of you know mass slaughter of civilians and children going on and all the problems that come with that and so uh, it shapes us in so many ways and this is just one of them and it's shaping both the discourse around like the immediate direct danger we face like with the prospects of you know Trump and everything that comes with it once again but then also like dealing with the problems and weaknesses of and of uh and, and you know, one thing, I'll, last thing I'll say is the idea of, that people have that like um, that there's some people out there who should probably know better, who think that uh, people should just turn a blind eye to like you know Democrats and even up to the office of the presidency, just turning themselves turning a blind eye to what's going on since 10-7, and then just thinking that oh, people are just supposed to shrug their shoulders and just uncritically support that and uh, because Trump is really bad and like, you know, that's not the way to go about addressing the the Trump problem, I would say, to say the least. No, and the 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 fact that we can't even talk about such events that have dates, for example, such as you brought up January 6th uh, in the questions around uh, what was the relationship of January 6th to questions uh, very core to the law in the United States in terms of where does 
free speech and core political activity end? And where does sedition and conspiracy against the people of the United States or the government of the United States begin? And that we, this is not, this is still quote-unquote controversial in terms of what January 6th was, who did it, and why, the nature of uh, an inside job in relationship to that. I mean, this is very similar in many ways to the quote-unquote controversy around September 11th. Even if you were to talk about the quote-unquote alternative analysis of 9-11 and the quote-unquote inside job aspect of 9-11, where it is obvious that it wasn't the U.S. post office that organized it and that you have to deal with a deeper and a maybe a more commanding heights kind of analysis of cells, of actual terrorist cells in terms of these kinds of deep events, that this all shows that, that forensics and facts and his real serious historical analysis still really matters immediately every single day in terms of even just its effect on mass consciousness, public pun- punditry. And uh, a few years ago, uh, I pointed out that there was that psychological warfare in an institutional fashion that emerges out of the bowels of the Israeli so-called security state, that they actually have an organization called Consciousness Operations, CONOPS, as I shortened it. And that is meant to be a play also, obviously, on, you know, not only consciousness operations, but also con, uh, a con. We talk about long wars. What about long cons? And so I think that this uh, begins to point out that we continue to have to really wrestle with the nature of forensics about specific uh, events, how they lead to what's very overt in terms of the ongoing mass uh, violence, destruction, uh, attempted national genocide that is ongoing by the Israeli state in Gaza against the Palestinian people. Some of that, you know, people will debate about the numbers, how many thousands of children uh, have been killed by the uh, by the Israelis, but thousands of children have been killed by the Israelis. That is a non-controversial statement. And a lot of that then hooks back into the question of what was October 7th. And so casting back the fact that we have this series of controversial events uh, that are obviously the hinge points of ongoing history, I think points to the the ongoing problem of the avoidance of truth and how you get to the truth and the hard problems of uh, forensics in terms of some of these uh, some of these kinds of events and right so that goes you know back through uh, 107 to 16 
to 11.9, as we call it, to 9.11, onwards and backwards through the 90s and the domestic terrorism in the United States in the 90s, on back, uh, obviously, to the uh, litany of assassinations in the, in the 60s, uh, the 11.22 assassination of an American president. And these networks of power continue to be front and center. I would say, you know, that they're that the one of the key pieces of controversy, let's say around the assassination of the Kennedy brothers in the 60s is fully on display right now in terms of the networks of power that I believe actually drove the macro circumstances of the October 7th uh operation and then obviously the quote unquote ongoing uh genocidal response. Uh, to it. And it shows up in our domestic politics in terms of this crucial independent now uh, candidate for president, RFK Jr. And, uh, and so I just more and more believe that we need to figure out how to match our meta-analysis or maybe our counterintelligence analysis of the way that narrative warfare works, that uh, uh, political uh, psychological dynamics work at mass scale to intelligence in, in many ways. And then that then includes assessing the work of military grade, at the very least, operations that have to do with how do you actually make a January 6th go from a protest to a, a storming of the Capitol with, at the very least, some involved with uh, seditious uh, and uh, seditious intent and uh, conspiracy to uh, commit some type of insurrectionary act, uh, and then onwards and, and backwards through these other deep events uh, that, uh, that I've brought up here. And of course, you know, in our our time away from the antidote, you know, things like the anniversary of the assassination of Kennedy uh, happened, the death of Kissinger happened. Now, some of this actually, you know, like actually on the the date on uh, November twenty second of twenty twenty three, I actually did a Twitter space, an X space with this. Uh, quote-unquote ex-CIA guy, Brian Cunningham, who had worked inside of the 9-11 Commission, had been a deputy of sorts, a national security deputy of sorts for Condoleezza Rice uh, during the George W. Bush administration. And the point that he had made for the, for the space was to deal with all these 9-11 conspiracy theories that were now popping up in the wake of October 7th that spoke about especially the question of Israel and 9-11, with some concern around the CIA and 9-11 too. But then very quickly, it became unavoidable, and Cunningham brought this up himself, about the Kennedy assassination conspiracy theories. And so then I had to go uh, right there, and that ultimately consumed a bunch of, of, uh, of the time in terms of that. So that's just an example of the way that these interlocking intergenerational controversies 
uh, continue to be to play directly into the moment and uh so i'm i'm still very interested in terms of uh excavating some of the forensics around what uh october 7th was in uh in terms of the relationship of hamas and the netanyahu regime and what actually happened and the ongoing uh bringing out of more and more information that really confirmed what I had originally uh, thought and really directed people to focus on this question of the Hannibal Directive. And now it's come out that there was what has been termed sort of semi-officially by certain Israeli uh, military folks as Mass Hannibal, Mass Hannibal uh, directive that was immediately deployed uh, in the hours of October 7th, 2023, meaning a uh, basically a total warfare response to the attack, which then looked like in you know, assault helicopters basically taking out an entire sets of uh, vehicles with potentially escaping uh, Israelis uh, and uh, blowing up uh, entire buildings in some of these kibbutzes. And so the, again, the specific forensics of how many Israeli victims on October 7th were killed by the Israeli military versus by Hamas and other Palestinian Gaza militants will continue to be excavated. But similarly to the question of how many Palestinian children continue to be killed by the Israeli military in Gaza, it is an uncontroversial statement of fact that many Israelis were killed by the Israeli military on October 7th. Now, there will be a continuing controversy now, and I've seen, you know, I've already seen a lot of the blowback uh, from, from many different kinds of analytical and journalistic circles in terms of this analysis of Israel's 9-11 uh, as it was immediately proclaimed and pushed, uh, not only as an analysis, but as a narrative. And the, the justification of Israel's quote-unquote response by talking about how many 9-11s comparatively of Israeli civilians were killed on October 7th compared to the American 9-11. And now you and I immediately saw the underlying narrative warfare behind the invo invocation of 9-11 as the archetype for this event, especially with this Netanyahu character uh, sitting there. And now the parallels are not perfect, nor should they be, I think. I think that would, if the parallels were uh, seen to be perfect, then I think that would indicate an analytical monoculture of some sort. But I continue to believe, and I believe the analysis becomes stronger over time, 
that what we had put forth as our analysis just two weeks after October 7th and October on the antidote continues to be, I think, to play out as very likely what October uh, 7th was, a, a, a let-it-happen kind of situation in the short term, a stand-down of security. More and more evidence has come out from what is largely a, a group of uh, female uh, Israeli border guards who are responsible for the basic uh, reconnaissance intelligence and reporting what's happening at the border, uh, including questions, I believe, that hook into things like reconnaissance, uh, satellite reconnaissance, Unit 9900, uh, in in Israel, and that these border guards were basically shut down, that they were warning of all of these layers of something coming uh, from across the border uh, in Gaza for many months, uh, maybe up to and maybe over a year. And what's interesting, I was in a another X space, this time with Ryan Dawson, where he was demeaning uh, basically that it was all these fake. It was basically Dawson was making a parallel sort of, you know, anti woke DEI kind of argument about how all these uh, female Israeli border guards failed or something like that. And I pointed out the time, and this analysis has only gotten stronger via the actual direct. Um, facts from the border guards themselves that no, it was actually potentially the opposite. They were doing their job as their job had been prescribed. They were noticing all these things. They were reporting all these things and they were being stood down. And I also push back against Ryan in terms of this interview that he had done with Scott Ritter, who Scott Ritter with some unnamed source, intelligence sources uh, from inside Israel, had said that this was because AI has taken over Israeli security and there are no humans in the mix and the AI was uh, just uh, doing um, analysis that didn't include uh, humans. And they this basically was a David versus Goliath with uh, the Hamas militants being the David with the stone and the slingshot and the Israeli AI uh, technocratic elite uh, answering only to AI were the Goliath who'd been brought down. Now, all of this just exactly reminds me of the post-9-11 period, where we even have like the Ward Churchill types who were in the wake of 9-11 calling you know, different people who worked in the World Trade Center's little Eichmann's and that this was just a slave, a global slave revolt uh, out of uh, Southern Asia that this m- massive American cyclops missed and all of that. And we've seen this, you know, for even like the Norman Finkelsteins. This was like sort of the Norman Finkelstein line immediately after October 7th, a successful slave uprising. But it's not just them. And this might be my final point, Greg, before I pass it back to you. But it's also the people who are standing, have this sort of, I think, a fantasy uh, of an axis of resistance that includes 
Hamas and the Houthis and Iran and Russia, that there this is an authentic resistance to the global Zio-American pig empire uh, of some sort. And so they see this kind of analysis also as basically just running cover for the Israelis by... Uh, by projecting the Israelis as all-knowing and all-powerful uh, of some se- of some sort, and so I find these kinds of narrative horseshoes very, very interesting. Yeah, they're like uh, little little Bagans. Would that be the equivalent to little Eichmanns? Yes, yeah, the little bag, <laughs> yeah, little yeah, little Bagans or little Shamirs, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Um, and it's interesting, um, and I want to circle back to this in a second, but I, I mean, I want to come back, but I wanted to circle back to you mentioning uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. And it's very interesting on the, uh, of course, it was the 60th anniversary of his uncle's assassination on November 22nd. And now just this week uh, was Martin Luther King Day. And um, Robert Kennedy Jr. Uh, made a big deal uh, about um, defending the, uh, you know, the the decision of his uh, father and his uh and his uncle to, you know, wiretap and uh, surveil Martin Luther King. Basically, I think it was under like the he had to do it because, you know, the FBI saw him as a threat and all this. But even that um, is interesting with like with hindsight, with like then I'm thinking about that because you combine that with somebody who I've been keeping an eye on recently um, in terms of uh, a very noticeable shift in a in a much um, in a very uh, noticeable shift in direction in terms of the tone of uh, discourse over the last couple of years, and that's Charlie Kirk. And Charlie Kirk uh, was uh, um, railing against the idea of Martin Luther King being seen as some type of uh, good historical figure and really going, treading into the waters of like what you'd find at like uh, places like Stormfront and V-Dare over the last couple of decades, you know, with the whole idea of, you know, this man was a, a dangerous communist who was, you know, a dangerous communist and womanizer who wanted to, uh, who they made a hero out of for, you know, for pushing like the whole idea of like, you know, MLK was the harbinger and the bringer on of the, you know, Mark revolution in America and all this. So I found that very interesting. That's kind of interest, uh, interesting uh, thought I had from uh, from Robert Kennedy Jr., you know, justifying from a historical, try, attempting to justify from a historical perspective or at least rationalize the um, surveillance of King by President Robert Kennedy or President John Kennedy and Attorney General Robert Kennedy combined with Charlie Kirk going in this very, I'd say, pretty dark direction in terms of his discourse and rhetoric in a lot of ways, which is now like uh, I basically I call him like the he's like the Jared Taylor to Nick Fuentes is David Duke at this point. Like, uh, you know, Charlie Kirk won't say, uh, you know, won't say the J word and Jared Taylor and David. So I, I, there's a parallel there. And I find I, I wanted to I wanted to bring that in because I think that's a very interesting. Um, that was an interesting development that I noticed this past week. And then circling back to uh, the question of uh, Israel and uh, the events of 10-7 in the aftermath, um, I caught on to there was a debate, quote-unquote debate, interview with uh, Piers Morgan on his uh, UK platform with uh, Norman Finkelstein. And, you know, they argued about... Uh, the whole thing with uh, you know Israel and uh, you know of course there were disagreements about like uh, you know 
quote unquote, who right and wrong and all of this. But it noticed that Finkelstein's immediate beginning was basically to rationalize and just, you know, rationalize why this happened and the the oppressed rising up against the oppressors. And that's what you were pointing out with this whole um, with this whole thing with uh, Scott Ritter and Ryan Dawson and, oh, the failure of DEI wokeness and AI um, allowed the allowed Goliath to come up and hit and punch David in the nose and David can't, you know, and Goliath doesn't like being punched. And so it responds like a bully and all of this. And, uh, and the parallels between like the blowback narratives. And, uh, and it's interesting, even from a domestic perspective, like the, uh, all the way from like this very, very Russian friendly, um, multipolar friendly, anti-imperialist foreign policy type of, uh, perspective all the way to what is seen as being more like, um, elements that these types see as hostile like democracy now types are all very much pushing like the you know this was imperial blowback and um and uh the and and one thing that i noticed and uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about this on a show i think we might have talked about this in a private um uh, conversation with our patrons that we post every now and a few weeks but um the topic of the that there were stories that came out about hamas uh the sexual assaults on on Israeli uh, women and people like Max Blumenthal in the gray zone were very quickly to dismiss this as just like, you know, it's imperial propaganda. It's like the type of people that would tell you that Gaddafi gave his soldiers Viagra, which interestingly enough, I believe Max's father, Sidney, played a role in pushing that uh, in pushing that talking point. But um, I digress. But the idea then that like um, the lionization and hero to make like this heroic narrative around Hamas when like, uh, you know, if the evidence does point to, you know, Hamas being originally a cutout um, of uh, Israeli intel going back to the 80s when I believe it was the Likud government of Shamir that was in power. And then more recently, at the very least being seen, very least being seen by Netanyahu as something that could be taken advantage of or used for it. And then, um, the relationship with uh, Russia and the Hamas leadership in Russia on multiple occasions. And when you take into consideration all of these dynamics and factors, I think it's very likely, I think um, that it's not far-fetched. As a matter of fact, it's quite plausible that there would be certain heinous actions that would take place perhaps by to then justify or then be used as like the rationalization or justification for going in and committing even worse acts of slaughter than than would be um, committed otherwise. So, yeah, so I guess my point is this blowback narrative is even more dangerous in terms of, like, not only is it just, like, uh, ignoring deep politics, but then also it makes heroes or lionizes as heroes and creates, like, this hero worship to some level or another around an entity that that really, I think, the evidence points to should not be looked at that, but very likely as an extension of the same forces that are carrying out this brutal um brutal callousness in uh in gaza right now as a result of the events of 10-7 yes i want to uh respond with three points uh one first of all in terms of the way that narrative warfare i think works in terms of what you pointed out about the i would call it the ritter reversal and what's interesting too, since this time, it looks like Scott Ritter has gone fully, uh, like to like becoming like a Russian military leader. I think he went to Chechnya in front of like thousands of ranks of Russian Chechen soldiers and gave them like an inspirational military speech. 
now, uh, you know, okay, you know, analysts and journalists uh, can have all kinds of different takes on geopolitics and support different sides and different wars and conflicts. But giving a direct speech as a constitutionally oath sworn American soldier to a foreign army? That seems uh, to be jumping the shark uh, to some extent that now I believe proves out a lot of what we had been pointing out for for years now in terms of the questions of Ritter and his background. Uh, And now there are some interesting complexity in terms of his relationship with Israel and potential compromise around Israel. But I think the question of Russia and uh, compromise and questions of loyalty in terms of Ritter's deep relationship with Russia, I believe, are being totally proven out in the public realm at, at this point. Now, we may want to, in the, in, in the coming weeks to months, may want to use Ritter's apparent it's sort of like bend, rounding around the curve in terms of his uh, now publicly stated uh, denouncing of Israel as a state in general. And we might want to do some work to understand the larger geopolitical narrative warfare that might have something to do in terms of especially the very difficult, I think, Russian negotiation in public around their allegiances in terms of Israel-Palestine and specifically the Netanyahu regime and Hamas uh, engagement uh, at the, at this point. But this this reversal, this AI reversal that Ritter Ritter did with Dawson. Where before this is right, sort of maybe in weeks to month to maybe a month before it began to come out that the Israeli military really was using uh, sort of AI based targeting. I would say it's a combination of AI based targeting with things like fusion center intelligence, uh, things like Palantir. By the way, Palantir now just went directly to Israel to interface with the Israelis in terms of their, the use of their uh, technology, uh, that it came out that, that the Israelis were using these kinds of data analytics AI systems that were also being used by the U.S. military in terms of their, what Mike Flynn might call counterinsurgency uh, or General Stanley McChrystal uh, both involved in the counterinsurgency, quote unquote, methods of the U.S. military, maybe especially in Afghanistan, but also Iraq. And even as we begin to know that there was drone strike targeting, uh, especially with the, in the a rise of that under the Obama administration, but then apparently an escalation of that under the quote-unquote peace president of Donald Trump didn't start any new wars as all his uh, sort of cultists uh, at all scales will try to falsely remind us of, uh, especially into the African sphere, that they would use this cell phone targeting data triangulation in terms of the basis for what was meant to be a lawful drone strike. And this is the basis, really, of the 
escalating amounts of very obviously non-hostiles and family members and wedding parties and all of these kinds of uh, criminal strikes by the by the U.S. government during the escalation of the "quote unquote" war on on terror, that is now and many, and many it's very possible that this actually em- emerged out of the Israelis. Now we know this to be the case in terms of post nine eleven torture policy. This was on the ground. There was Israeli supervisors and contractors that were working via the American private military contractors in terms of what, you know, became things like the Abu Ghraib uh, torture scandal. All right. We know that there was the so-called intellectual background of the Israeli so-called understanding of the Arab mind that it only understands violence humiliation, and you begin to see the background of things like both uh, torture and sexual humiliation as emerging from some of these areas of uh, militarized, weaponized Israeli psychology, so-called intellectual, so that then we then had that emerge in the American sphere post 9-11 in terms of the American, I think it was the Psychological Association scandal where they were uh, said they had contractors who were overseeing the post 9/11 uh, torture. So it is very possible that the, this whole and this makes sense to me. I've always thought this. The analysis points in that direction, and I don't think it's a coincidence that it was the Fusion Center in Kansas City guys who were the ones who then targeted me and us for uh, direct action and uh, assault and arrest and prosecution in terms of free speech around the Dennis Ross event in 2016 at the Kansas City Public Library, that these fusion centers are emerged post 9-11. They came out of the Homeland Security uh, apparatus that was seemed to have been imported in many ways, uh, very likely with a very strong uh, Israeli, at the very least, interest, if not input. We know that this came hand in hand with the escalation of what's called the deadly exchange in terms of American uh, police, especially command uh, level operatives going to Israel to be quote-unquote, trained in uh, counterterrorism. And really, I, I believe the psychology of occupation, the tactics of maintaining an occupation, and then that psychology and some of the tactics, including these intelligence fusion center tactics, brought back into the United States. So I, once again, not a coincidence, I think, that the, the two guys who were involved in grabbing and assaulting me while I was at a public event, uh, invited to come speak at the microphone. They had both been to Israel within the last half year, paid by the local uh, Jewish uh, power institutions, basically via the Jewish Federation. Uh, Then the event sponsored by the Jewish Community Foundation. This is all the, the architecture of the Israel lobby and then the way that Jewish power is institutionalized throughout not only the United States, but all of North America and actually throughout the world in many ways, you'll see these different configurations of these kinds of groups and institutions that have names like Jewish 
uh, as the first word, Jewish federations, uh, that uh, that really, uh, no matter the nature of their liberal or conservative local politics, they are the enforcers of the Israel lobby's desires and Jewish power more uh, broadly uh, in the United States. So I think that there was a major uh, in, in, uh, inversion that Ritter was uh, at work on with his conversation of Dawson about how it was AI that had caused the Israeli Goliath to miss the slave uprising by the Hamas Davids. Whereas it was really very likely the case that this was anticipating that that the Israelis were actually using AI and Palantir and fusion type counterinsurgency type uh, metadata analytics to target entire families in Gaza for for bombings and now in this case that was not actually i don't believe intended collateral damage that was a, that's actually the point here this is the israelis are using this situation to do what they've always done which is to target uh families target individuals who potentially either have some kind of political legitimacy in terms of their rights to specific aspects of property or land that is now in what's considered Israel proper, or groups, uh, families, and individuals who potentially represent a political threat. And, the, the, and this is, of course, some of the deeper background of the Israeli sponsorship of Hamas and their, uh, the way that they used it as a religious uh, countergang to the sort of secular, maybe more sort of seen as global uh, Marxist resistance, the PLO, who were very secular. And that part of this was, by, was to set up a, uh, a situation where they would preserve themselves from actually having to speak with the organic Palestinian leadership, the intellectual Palestinian leadership, the activist Palestinian leadership. And now they've always targeted these folks, uh, whether in the West Bank or in Gaza, in different ways. And they have uh, either done the civil assassination, which is, was put forth by the then head of the uh, Ministry of Strategic Affairs, where she talked specifically about civil assassination uh, around the world of anyone who was prominent and articulated why Israel should be a sub subject to boycott, divestment, or sanctions. Uh, at, or just direct physical violence or arrest or compromise in some cases in terms of using their intelligence services to get information about people that could be then used to compromise them and get them to uh, shut up or do the I Israeli wish. So that's that's one thing. I think that was a a, a deep inversion, and uh, I, I to me it just sounds like totally made up. And I'm pretty sure Ritter didn't actually have any present sources in Israel to make the statement that this was the fault 
of uh, of AI missing missing this whole scenario, and that's how October seventh happened. Okay, then on to a question of the left and Martin Luther King uh, Jr. holiday. I've noticed that in terms of Palestinian solidarity, that from the sort of sanctioned Palestinian groups to the Jewish Voices for Peace types, and which would then include in the middle some of the maybe more progressive American uh, religious types and secular types of Christians, that the, the, the holiday was set off by an announcement of this big event in Chicago for Palestinian solidarity calling for ceasefire with the headliner being Jesse Jackson. All right. And so we begin to run into this whole thing that you pointed out about Charlie Kirk is now, and even Nick Fuentes, I think, is basically making fun of Charlie Kirk about how Charlie Kirk, welcome to, uh, you know, 2017, uh, you, you might, uh, you know, you sort of are late to the, let's call into question Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy party. It's interesting because what goes unspoken here, and sometimes, you know, Charlie Kirk will use it when it's advantageous to him, like, oh, finally, Charlie Kirk's being, you know, red-pilled or whatever, but is that this was the inevitable result once Charlie Kirk started going in this more weaponized Christian nationalist direction is that this was the inevitable result that he would turn out basically to be a Nick Flint's, you know, whereas a few years ago, you know, there was still some, but over the last couple of years, he's really taken this direction. And I think ultimately, if you look at it logically, like the logical result of moving in like this more overtly weaponized uh, Christian nationalist direction, like this was the inevitable result is that the rhetoric would, uh, it's, there's always, it's always been, sort of similar, but like they would basically almost turn into carbon copies of each other just with like, you know, I made the comparison earlier, Kirk playing the role of Jared Taylor to Nick Fuentes as David Duke, but uh, it seems pretty inevitable, but that is something that is like not really um, spoken as the you know right-wing movement in America continues to become more and more like just entirely like just taken over by like the forces of MAGA and all this. It is inevitable, but that doesn't um, really get uh, talked about as much as it should, I don't think. Yeah, and this, in many ways, this reminds me of our own experiences in 2017 in terms of when we began to really deeply explore the question of the assassinations of the 60s, including the King assassination. We did it at the in parallel or in a, a, a dynamic intellectual relationship with the deeper history of Jewish power and the rise of Zionism in the United States, especially via certain organizations such as the Anti-Defamation League, its parent organization, the B'nai B'rith. And it was very interesting that even at that time, we were both being attempted to be sort of like, almost like maybe recruited in a certain way to the network, the network, the 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 information networks that surrounded things like E. Michael Jones, culture wars and podcasts that would be, you know, surrounding that kind of uh, stance on things that people that I think that it's fair to say that people like Nick Fuentes and Charlie Kirk represent the modern right horseshoe, the contemporary right horseshoe of the weaponized culture war 
as an approach or as I would say an avoidance and a destabilization of real deep politics uh, in many ways. And so we were either being recruited and at the same time being attacked in certain ways about not calling into question this commie bastard uh, uh, king who had, uh, you know, uh, copied his... uh, his thesis and you know, plagiarism. And so it's interesting that we, that at the same time, we're now plagiarism is coming back into the fold in, in terms of like black academics and the uh, head of Harvard uh, standing down in relationship to questions of uh, allowing a rampant anti-Semitism with the then the function, the functionary, the shock troop being Chris Rufo, uh, using culture war dynamics and accusations, it looks to me like false accusations potentially of uh, of plagiarism in terms of uh, gay. I think her name's Gay. His uh, thesis, Claudine Gay. Claudine Gay's thesis, and all of that. And yet, the the real, then I would say the once again the Israel lobby, the Jewish power. Dynamics are the ones who actually come in and functionalize, uh, operationalize the the attack on uh, on uh, you know the first uh, you know a black woman head of Harvard via networks like Bill Ackman, whose wife was uh, you know uh, in, involved with the with the phila- the philanthropic arm of the Epstein network via the MIT Media Lab, right? And we know there's the whole Epstein-Harvard uh, situation. And so that that's a whole thing going on. And then one, just to finish the thought in terms of the, the problems with the left right now, in terms of what I noticed, that obviously that putting... Jesse Jackson in Chicago as the big gathering, the intellectual political gathering to gather support for Palestinian solidarity and call for a ceasefire right around the time of the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday shows the massive, uh, you know, dupiness of that entire set at the very uh, best and weaponization, really. Because I'll just, you know, plainly state it came out in the civil legal investigations of the King family via their lawyer, William Pepper, uh, with thousands and thousands and thousands of hours and pages of uh, evidence and documentation and, uh, and interviews under oath, uh, depositions, uh, and all of that, that, yeah, King was involved with the uh, compromised FBI and military intelligence group that then interfaced via the Dixie mob with the local police, the dirtied up police elements in Memphis to uh, set King up for assassination. And this is running parallel. I would point out two main things. Obviously you have the so-called anti-defamation league being a key infiltrator of King and his circles in terms of doing surveillance. And now this this came out maybe almost a quarter century to 30 years later in the San Francisco Weekly by an ADL whistleblower himself who had been working at the ADL during these early 60s years when the ADL was being 
uh, instrumentalized as a, a spy on King and his network. And it continues to look like the case that there were real, the some of the interests that the ADL had maybe beyond the FBI. And now that's the other point. We'll deal with that next. Hoover and, you know, did RFK Jr. bring up the Shine family or the Crown, a.k.a. Krinsky family uh, in terms of uh, King and the assassination of his father and the properties and the uh, compromise of the head of the FBI, Hoover, directly via Shine family property down in Florida with Hoover's uh, closeted uh, deputy lover, uh, Tolson, and all of that. No, he did not, of course. But the, one of the main things that the ADL was very likely interested in, in a similar way that they were interested in 30 years later when they were spying on virtually all of, at the very least, liberal to progressive and not just, there was also a targeting of certain uh, conservative elements to spy on them on behalf of Israeli intelligence hooked up with apartheid South African intelligence, that the, were the main things, obviously, that the ADL was concerned about was the question of Palestine, Israel and Palestine. And this continues to be another controversy. MLK Jr.'s relationship to Zionism, to Israel, to Palestine, and the part that continues to be covered up, I think, pretty intently, is the question of Arab-slash-Palestinian solidarity in relationship to some of uh, King's uh, uh, closest friends' networks and then where he was intending uh, to move in uh, the years uh, subsequent. Yeah, and I think that this is a big part of, uh, historically, the long term of what has now become in recent years what we've identified, this fear of the, of like, of, America domestically. I think European society has been ahead of America in this regard, but in terms of American society becoming more, you know, multicultural and much less inclined to just accept like what is defined as just traditional American value, American conservatism combined with like this infusion of Christian Zionism and all this. And as a result for that support for Israel, you know, support for the, you know, the, the historic oppressor, because America has its own issues dealing with its own like historical sins, for example, becomes more prevalent and support for the Palestinian cause becomes more prevalent. There's been a significant fear of this, which I think has played a role in terms of uh, geopolitical shifts and some of the um, the upheaval and the changes in, the, in terms of like some of the dynamics that have taken place in our politics over the last couple of decades is in part a big part of that is this fear of societal changes, which includes a change in the direction of people's attitudes towards things like Israel, Palestine, or it becoming more seeped into people's consciousness. And I think this long-term monitoring of like organized left uh, politics by ADL type of organizations has um, historically been important in terms of like leading to this current moment of the last decade or so of this increased fear of like what a more multicultural, less, um, you know, inclined to believe like traditional, the idea of the conventional wisdom in a lot of circles of what like, you know, what America is combined with its outlook on the world is a major threat to these interests. And, you know, this, this is just the long-term um, playing out of that now really uh, becoming very visibly publicly playing out like with all this battle over you know 
DEI initiatives and wokeness and uh, bad, evil, black, anti-Semitic college administrators and female college administrators. So this is the long term, I think, uh, long term playing of that leading into a moment like where we're at now. Yes, and the the too long didn't read uh, aspect of King that that the King family and their lawyer Pepper found out via years of litigation, and then Pepper writing three books about it was that it was a high level conspiracy to assassinate King via. A certain unit uh, set up inside of military uh, U.S. military intelligence. The a lot of it uh, apparently handled via the Hoover Compromise FBI, and then the the Dixie mob uh, connected local uh, networks surrounding the Memphis police. Now the ADL piece is actually almost like appears like an umbrella over a lot of this in terms of similar kinds of connections to the New Orleans ADL that we see with certain elements of the John Kennedy assassination uh, and questions of Raul and Canada and uh, this what looks like a geographically like a Bronfman ADL mega type network going on here. And and Jackson was a, a paid informant. He was a he was a paid snitch at the very least, and it looks like you know he helped set up King. And I'll just point out, like the you know of you know talked to publicly on camera, confronted dozens, if not you know more than a hundred different kinds of uh, public figures. But I would say that the time I felt the most intense potential, um, like physical threat and pushback was not the times that I was actually uh, arrested once uh, at the Bill Maher show by the LAPD and once at the Kansas City Public Library by the Kansas City, Missouri uh, Police Department. Although, you know, there was threat there and actually there was more physical uh, assault in both of those cases uh in the mar case by the uh private security basically bashed me threw me against the concrete broke my glasses all of that and in the kansas city case you know uh not massive physical assault but like grabbing and pushing uh and and, and all of that and then ultimately arrest and prosecution there but the time that I felt the most direct physical pushback and threat as an aura and uh, in a sort of mob kind of situation was when I confronted Jesse Jackson when he came to Occupy LA in the uh, fall of 2011. And I asked him these questions. I asked him this question. I said, you know, there are these people, there are, there are researchers in the African-American community, including people like um, uh, Steve Coakley, who have identified you as uh, being on the inside of the operation to uh, kill King. And there was massive pushing and people were grabbing me and the, 
the guy who had helped bring him to occupy uh, L.A., who, by the way, had identified himself as a former American military intelligence, by the way. He was really trying to, in the midst of it, when King, when Jackson was giving his speech, I was interjecting with certain points. He was really trying to get me to be quiet. Uh, and then after the fact, there was a, a lot of like street level kind of mob kind of thug stuff going on with uh, people who I'd never seen before uh, and grabbing me and shoving me around. And so there is a lot of tension there. I get the sense of Jesse Jackson and the question of the dynamics of the apparent assassination of a, what looks like a, a, a real, you know, obviously there's, it can be many different kinds of critical takes from di many different perspectives in terms of King, his background, his political commitments, all of that kind of thing. But it, to me, it looks like at the very least, he was an American black uh, Christian radical who had a, uh, a, a method, a very American and a very, you know, philosophically uh, nonviolent based approach to how to uh, engender uh, change uh, inside of the American system which to me was would have been for the better. Uh, and then that was then uh, disrupted. And then a toxic mimic of that, most obviously, I would say, in the form of an individual like a Jesse Jackson, was then, uh, then inserted to where we are today, where he is now being put front and center at, as the, you know, for the Palestinian solidarity movement as the best character to call for a ceasefire uh, which has become like the, you know, the the term to go to, which then also will not deal with the deep politics of October 7th, the Iraq war, the 9-11, the war on terror as an Israeli uh, gambit in many ways, right? Of course. So there's all of that going on. And then finally, I'd just like to finish up by, by pointing out this uh, Charlie Kirk RFK Jr. kind of horseshoe. It almost, the, the, you could see a troika in many ways uh, that that uh, apparently I think tries to keep under control aspects of the right, where you have Nick Fuentes, uh, sort of like an E. Michael Jones kind of next generation E. Michael Jones uh, type in terms of quote unquote philosophy. Uh, as uh, operationally and professionally as the next generation for millennials, sort of later millennials and Zoomers, as really just the Rush Limbaugh and then Alex Jones type for the uh, live streaming uh, age or something like that. That's one. Then you have this Charlie Kirk who's meant to represent, you know, Con Inc. or the middle of the road uh, Republican conservatives who are. Uh, more and more embracing the culture wars and intensifying the culture wars. And then I would say you have this stopgap measure of the RFK Jr., who's suspected as being, uh, you know, too liberal, obviously, because he is, you know, his background as an environmental lawyer. He's obviously a liberal of some sort, but he's also uh, has, a, you know, captured the moment in terms of uh, COVID and the culture war surrounding COVID. 
And he represents almost like a middle-of-the-road backstop under the guise of an independent candidate for president uh, to a lot of this, um, you know, narrative analysis, I think. And so RFK Jr. basically seizing the the moment to justify, as you said, you know, as you were pointing out, uh, his, uh, you know, his father and the president's, uh, you know, surveillance of King and all that without then calling into question the nature of the, of Hoover directly. And it's, you know, it's obvious like that Robert Kennedy had tension with Hoover. They, there was a suspicion there, but we, for putting aside Kennedy's relationship with Hoover, we now know that Hoover was directly compromised by the Meyer Lansky, uh, you know, super mob, the, the Jewish mob in the United States that then became the undergirding uh, network for the rise of the Jewish state and worked to uh, get weapons there. And there's more and more evidence that via such power families inside of the Jewish power establishment, such as the Shine family, the Krinsky family, which became the Crown family, which you know took over General Dynamics. There's a whole piece of General Dynamics in terms of uh, the assassination of John Kennedy and the Vietnam War that then hooks into Texas politics and the Johnson question uh, in in all of that to the Shine family who were basically the ones who owned the property where Hoover had his photo taken and then owned by Meyer Lansky in terms of him being, uh, you know, closeted, having a closeted uh, gay relationship with uh, Tolson. And so this is right, right there in the background of the combination of the question of Israel-Palestine in the contemporary moment, but then directly tells us a lot of what we really need to know right now in terms of the questions of the assassinations of both of the Kennedy brothers and uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And increasingly now we're getting more and more information about the assassination of Malcolm X that uh, I think would be a good year for us to delve into uh, some of the forensics around, around that and especially how they can help us understand how we're being uh, meant to be contained within these kinds of narrative landscapes that I think, you know, are very clearly framed on the right by Fuentes, Kirk, and RFK Jr. And then uh, these similar kinds of networks with a different kind of approach on the left, which I, you know, I would just point out this question of Jesse Jackson and Palestinian solidarity. And then maybe in the future, we can get more into my, my assessment of Jewish voice for peace right now and the apparent uh, desire and apparent stand down of actually directly confronting Jewish power and the Israel lobby institutions while deferring that to like shutting down uh, freeways, confronting, you know, protesting outside of Congress people's offices. Sure, that's good uh, political uh, lobbying. But if that doesn't go hand in hand with directly confronting the Israel lobby and the nature of its Jew Jewish power dynamics, such as the Jewish Federation had a meeting in Kansas City 
that the elements of Jewish Voice for Peace knew about and even talked about. Like, we, that would be a very interesting. We should figure out uh, how to properly uh, demonstrate or protest in relationship to that. And uh, mum's the word on the, those kinds of things while there's this replication of shutting down train stations and freeways, which just even politically doesn't seem to make sense. It just gets sort of the average person angry. I understand. It makes people feel inconvenienced as opposed to um, going into these actual power centers. And I, you know, I understand like human protest, you know, the nature of like making these public displays as you're talking about, but it really it gains a lot of hostility and animus from people who are just trying to move along their lives, who are very inconvenienced by it, as opposed to like what you're talking about with like going directly to the power centers. Exactly. And so, you know, more and more you begin to see the aspects of uh, certain certain parts of the Palestinian solidarity movement, all, all the way from the, the Jewish progressive uh, radical groups to the uh, more uh, Muslim-based, Palestinian-based uh, groups, that there is a lot of geopolitical question here in terms of the nature of what they're doing and what they're not doing, especially, I would say, in relationship to some of these Jewish groups. Because in a certain way, we are in a, a repetition of the post 9-11 era. We're in the post-Israel's 9-11 era, and so similar kinds of things that we saw where there was a big push against the Iraq war, including amongst, you know, uh, large portions of the Jewish American community that was then led up in many cases by some of these Jewish progressives who purposefully stood down at some of these biggest, uh, uh, you know, pre-Iraq war rallies, especially like in New York City, uh, they stood down um, uh, Palestinians, they stood down Arab and uh, Muslim activists and intellectuals, and they definitely stood down questions of 9-11 truth, especially as it might uh, go directly to the commanding heights of the Israeli so-called security state. And so we're, it's things have been sort of opened up and softened a little bit. People who were directly on the side of the Israel lobby and the Iraq war back then, such as uh, Peter Beinart, are now talking sort of anti-Israel uh, apartheid and they're against the Israeli response post 9-11. But the deep politics of all of this continue to be, I would say, the uh, the missing piece and ultimately, I think, the Achilles heel of some of these very synthetically organized, at least at the narrative and sort of activist operational level about, you know, who are we going to protest? Who are we going to, quote unquote, inconvenience with our core political uh, speech? Uh, is it going to be everyday uh, drivers and passengers from like the 110 freeway in Southern California to uh, train travelers in New York City? Or is it going to be these Jewish federations with their events ongoing uh, where we should be actually protesting outside and calling to question the nature of the Israel lobby and its power in the United States and how really destructive it is not only to obviously to the you know lives of of both Palestinians ongoing but also to Israelis over many years I would say too but also intensely to the American lives uh, both in terms of the cost the trillions of dollars of uh, law quote unquote loss investment 
uh, uh, in terms of these wars, uh, many of them very driven by the Israel lobby, or whether it's this seditious assault on core uh, political principles, rights, and values in the United States in terms of the uh, the backing by the Israel lobby of the 1-6 insurrectionists to the ongoing rolling out of these anti-First Amendment, uh, anti-BDS uh, laws throughout the state governments. All right. And I think with that, Jeremy, this um, is a good place to wrap up and we'll have to pick up this conversation again very soon. But um, I'm glad to be back doing this with you again and uh, we'll talk soon. All right. Me too. Thank you very much, Greg. I appreciate it. And thank you, everybody uh, out there. Thank you for uh, rocking with us while we had a much-needed break. And we will be back um, very consistently uh, in this newish year. All right. Until next time. Antidote, we are out. (laughs) 